Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 24th, 2018, and my guest is historian Frank DeCutter, Chair, Professor of Humanities at the University of Hong Kong, and a Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's written numerous books on China, including Mao's Great Famine, The History of China's Most Devastating Catastrophe. It won the 2011 Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction, and it is the subject of today's episode. Frank, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. This is a very depressing book about an extraordinarily tragic topic, but it's a topic that I think everyone should know something about, and that few do, which is the famine in China from 1958, roughly, to 1962 that resulted, incredibly, in the deaths of tens of millions of people. So let's begin with some background. What were the origins of what is called the Great Leap Forward? What was Mao trying to do, and how did that lead toward the famine? Well, in a nutshell, what is the great leap forward? What what does it leap into, so to speak? It leaps from socialism into communism. It's um, a utopia. Um, the idea being that, um, this is Mao Zedong's idea, um, the idea being that if you can somehow use those hundreds of millions of people in the countryside and turn every man, every woman, into a foot soldier in a giant army that you can then deploy and make them work, till the fields, produce iron in the evening, uh, you know, deploy them like an army, you can somehow catapult your country past your competitors. You can have that great leap forward. And at this point in Chinese history, it's important to remember in the mid-50s, Towards the late 50s, uh, the Chinese Revolution, Mao's ascent to power had only been 1949. Yes. And the Soviet Union was the longstanding communist success story, at least people thought so. And Mao had a, an ego desire to, to best the Soviet Union as well as the capitalist countries. Yes, dictators always want to best each other. Uh, 1949 is the date that the red flag goes up over the Forbidden City in Beijing. Beijing becomes the capital of the People's Republic of China. Um, and from the beginning, Mao is very keen to transform his country into a mirror image of the Soviet Union. Literally thousands of Soviet advisors come in. Um, but oddly enough, the one man who restrains the Stalinization of China is Stalin himself. <laughs> Stalin is the one who views Mao as a potential competitor. Uh, he's had Yugoslavia and Tito with all the issues that that entails. He's obviously not that keen on having a very great power 
right next door to his own empire. So on the one hand, he supports China and Mao's revolution. On the other hand, he tries to rein it in. So he is the one who advises Mao to slow down the pace of collectivization. Stalin dies in 1953, and this truly is Mao's liberation. For the first time, there's no one to restrain him. The first thing Mao does is accelerate the pace of the collectivization. By the end of 1953, he imposes a monopoly on the grain. This sounds complicated, but in effect, ordinary villagers in the countryside have to sell the grain they produce to the state at state-mandated prices. In other words, they uh, are no longer masters of what they produce. A few years later, 55, 56, comes the first wave of collectivization as state farms copied from the Soviet Union are set up. Uh, none of this is quite enough. Mao wishes to go much further. And his real challenge here, uh, in the wake of Stalin's death, is of course not only to carry out collectivization in China and transform that country from a relatively backward power into a world power, but also to become the leader of the socialist camp. Stalin is dead. Who becomes the leader? Um, of course, it's not Mao. It's Khrushchev, as we all know. So the real challenge here is to somehow best Khrushchev and try to... Khrushchev to you, American listeners. Khrushchev Go ahead. <laughs> I remember this vaguely from my lessons in Russian uh, at university. That's pronounced Khrushchev. Or Khrushchev is fine, too. <laughs> best remembered, of course, for the man who uh, used his shoe... Uh, to bang on the podium at a, nation, at a session of the United Nations in, in New York. Anyway, in, in, in um, October 1957, uh, to mark the 40th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution 1917, uh, all the leaders of the socialist camp are invited to Moscow. And there, Khrushchev announces that he will overtake your country, the United States, in the production of dairy products, Mao doesn't miss a beat without even standing up. He says, if you wish to overtake the United States, we will beat England, the United Kingdom, in the production of steel within 15 years. That's the start of the Great Leap Forward. In a nutshell, while the Great Leap Forward is often understood as an attempt to overtake capitalist countries, in the fact, it's rivalry between Beijing and Moscow, between Mao Zedong and Nikita Khrushchev. And so, besides this grandiose and grossly unattained goal of passing the UK in steel in 15 years, and I remember from your book, they soon make it five years, because 15 is not bold enough. Um, they're very ambitious on uh, how they change agricultural practice. So they, they besides the selling of the grain to the state, in addition to, um, well, the phrase collectivization doesn't really cover the range of stuff that they try because they also want to they want to catapult their their grain production. They want to increase it dramatically, yes. and so they they uh, launch a massive set of top down both technique changes and allocation of labor to agriculture. Uh, it's quite complicated. We can't obviously we can spend the whole hour just on mm -hmm. this. 
but and we won't. So just give us a summary of some of the practices that were put in place at this time to try to increase grain production. Yes. When we talk, before I talk about these specific practices, um, when we talk about collectivization, some listeners might not quite understand what that really means. And collectivization is in effect, uh, in particular with the Great Leap Forward, uh, the abolition of private property. Um, I, I already explained that by the end of 1953, the state imposes a monopoly on the grain, meaning that in effect the grain no longer belongs to the farmer. But the soil, the land is taken back by the state. And then in 1958, uh, hundreds of millions of villagers in China are herded into giant collectives called people's communes. So in effect, um, a Chinese villager no longer has any property uh, that is his own. The land belongs to the state. His schedule is determined by a local party official, a cadre, a cadre sometimes pronounced as cadre, C-A-D-R-E. His pots and pans have been taken away. Uh, sometimes his house has been destroyed and he lives in a collective dormitory. Children sent to collective kindergartens. People work in collective units, brigades um, outside at the back and call of these political uh, cadres. But what, but what proportion would you say, and of course it's crude because it's not easily measured, but what proportion of farmers at this point are literally uh, mobilized for what, what I would call military agriculture? You might say that collectivization is based on the military model. In other words, the vision here is that if you turn man, women, children into foot soldiers, uh, if you have them work along military lines, um, it will be much more effective. Yep. So there's this vision of freedom and liberty, which is highly negative. Somehow a villager who decides to plant watermelons is um, not contributing grain to the state, and the state needs the grain to sell it on the international market to buy massive uh, turnkey projects, which will fuel this great leap forward. It's the same model as Stalin. Stalin wants the grain to go straight from the fields into the granaries so that he can sell it on the international market and fuel his own modernization from 1929 to 34 with the famine that ensued in 5 to 10 million people in yeah. the Ukraine. Uh, Mao's very much doing the same thing. There's this um, in deeply ingrained resistance against anything that smacks of private enterprise. Private enterprise is generally described as speculation, as something that... It's will, a nasty term, It's obviously. a nasty term, as bourgeois liberalism, as capitalist, as all the terms are highly negative. So if you can run your country like a giant army, if you can run the countryside as if these people uh, are foot soldiers, that would be much more effective. The vocabulary comes straight from the army. These are brigades. These are units. So they take, in addition to this mobilization, they impose a whole set of practices that weren't in place previously 
for agriculture. They plant seeds closer together. They have massive irrigation yes. projects. They try to re what reroute the Yellow River, clear out the Yellow River. I forget what, what they what they have all these grandiose schemes. Exactly. And who's who's in charge? Is is, it, is there a meaningful sense in which Mao is steering this from the top in any actual way, or is it, it, it the way impression I got from reading your book is it's almost like there's set of, I would call them political entrepreneurs between Mao and the people who are um, letting a thousand flowers bloom, which of course they're not blooming, but they're trying a bunch of trial and error things in total ignorance because they know nothing about agriculture relative to the people on the ground, the areas that they're in. But they're trying a whole bunch of stuff that ultimately fails horribly in terms of output. Yes. So it's based not only in a very negative vision of private enterprise and freedom, but also to some extent, you might say, based on a very, very negative vision of these villages, r rather than listen to them and have them tell you what works best. After all, they've been uh, working the soil for hundreds of years, and you might think that they would know how to do it. But instead, everything comes from the top. Grandiose plans where people are deployed in units, brigades, sent to the countryside to work on water conservancy uh, plans or to, for instance, uh, do close cropping or deep plowing. These are two of the schemes that are advanced by Beijing. Close cropping means that you're going to really uh, plant these seedlings close together. Get more more per get acre. Far more per acre than you would normally get. Deep plowing, meaning that you're going to go 30 centimeters deep, uh, possibly up to one meter or even three meters. But of course, what is so important here is that reason uh, has been abolished some time ago. This is all guided by political imperatives. So if the chairman from Beijing tells you that deep plowing is good, um, then you, as a political commissar in charge of your brigade, you will try to outdo the, the next door village by plowing even deeper. So yes. at some point, you have people who go three meters deep with the lights in the middle of the night trying to, to outdo each other. To show their devotion to, to the wisdom their devotion. of... Yeah. If fertilizer becomes important, which it of course is, but if all of a sudden there is a competition to get more fertilizer and hence a greater crop per acre, then it will lead to the most absurd schemes where one foreigner passes through fields in North China and sees that some of them are covered in sugar, where houses are being torn down in the belief that somehow these mud huts contain, contain organic matter and will contribute uh, to a better crop. So, Which, of course, it doesn't. So at, it this, doesn't. at this point, the actual there's two things, as I understand it, going on at this point. The actual output goes down. We have loss of incentives. People are basically being treated as close to slaves. They're being pushed out into the fields, like you say, at night, sometimes under lights, uh, beaten to show to, if they show insufficient zeal and, and work effort. So we moved to almost... It seemed like a slave economy, plus the, the know-how that was, as you say, present in these villages for centuries is thrown out. And at the same time, uh, China is selling a lot of grain that it does have uh, on the international market. Yes. But the bottom line is um, the crop goes down yes. dramatically. Yes. 
and the part of that crop that's available for domestic consumption also goes yes. down. Is that accurate? Not entirely. You say that they are treated almost like slaves. They are not treated almost like slaves. They are treated like slaves. They are serves. This is Friedrich Hayek's book, The Road to Serve. Yeah, it's crazy. This road in the People's Republic is covered from 1949 to 1958. By 1958, farmers have lost every incentive to work. The land is not theirs, the tools are not theirs, the schedule is not theirs, nothing is theirs. So how do you get a man or a woman to work when there is no incentive to do so? If they work, of course they can go to the canteen and they earn work points. The work points entitle them to a meal, which will be extremely frugal in any event, frequently not enough to sustain somebody who works all day long. Because, of course, all of this is being cut since so much has to be delivered to the states. These and people have made, have made forecasts, projections, These local promises. officials are keen to show that they are the ones who really know how to carry out the Great Leap Forward. And they make promises. They promise higher and higher quotas, uh, deliveries of grain, steel, you name it, cotton to the state. So all of this has to be taken away from the very people who produce it. But the key question still is, how do you motivate a man or a woman to work when there is no incentive? Now, fear. at some point, you have fear to be... violence. It's yeah. fear, fear of violence. Not only that, but you can beat them, uh, which they do. Uh, you can cover them in urine and excrement. You can make them work naked outside in the middle of the winter. All of this uh, will incite them to work. But ultimately, your best weapon is food. In other words, food becomes a weapon. If you do not work hard enough, you will not be fed in the public canteen or you'll be banned from the canteen. It goes back to Lenin. He put it in a nutshell. He who does not work shall not eat. That principle is applied literally. In other words, a great many people do not simply starve because there is no food, they are being starved by the regime. People who do not work hard enough because they're sick, women who are pregnant, children, elderly people, those who simply can't produce enough, they're being cut off from the food chain. So we'll talk in a little bit about the, um, the toll this takes, but I wanna, I wanna, before we do that, I wanna talk a little bit about some of the other things that are going on in the economy Good. So uh, steel was a big focus. It's just I, I just want to mention this because it's it's one of my pet peeves, the the focus on a particular industry as the road to prosperity. There's a certain romance about steel. It's a it's it's a sign of modernization. Obviously, primitive economies import steel if they have any at all. So there was again a matter of national pride here and ego. I think for Mao, and I mean I, I've known about this for a long time, but your book. You know, describes it in more detail than I'd understood it. He actually encourages people to build to build furnace steel furnaces in their backyard, and to devote all kinds of metal from their household pots and pans, etc., doorknobs to these foundries of of um, ridiculous in, inefficient scale. Absolutely, but. The tragedy of this isn't that they devoted too much, to me, the tragedy isn't they devoted too many resources to steel. The tragedy is they didn't get much steel for it. <laughs> it was a total and utter failure in terms of quality and output. 
Yes, you take a good tool, you melt it down in a backyard furnace, a backyard furnace being some improvised small furnace set up in a village. And what comes out is pig iron, which is of such poor quality that you can't make the very tool that you used in the first place to produce it. Yeah. It's absurd. But there is something almost magical about steel in the socialist universe. Steel is the marker of progress. I mean, yeah. Stalin means steel. Hmm. And not just because Stalin is a hard man, you know, tempered by the revolution and unafraid of smashing all enemies who stand in the way of the revolution, but also because steel is a sign of, of progress. That's what you want. Um, so an, an obsession around the production of steel and, of course, grain. These countries, not just China, but others as well, who go through collectivization, become monocultures. They produce one or two things, you know, grain on the one hand, steel on the other. Oil in some countries. It's, uh, yeah. So this, is, this goes terribly, um, although uh, it's not exactly publicized how badly it's going. You can actually online watch videos of cheerful uh, Chinese peasants uh, lining up to bring their, their walks and other household utensils to dump into the, um, into the furnaces. It, it raised the question of, of what was the person on the, on, the, on the ground thinking? So we have, you know, there are different levels, and you actually capture quite a few of them in the book. You have some of the internal discussions of the Chinese leadership where they are you know, optimistic and, and doing their best and, 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 and hopeful of achieving these ridiculous goals like passing Britain in 15 years. Then you have the person on the ground, which, of course, we don't have as much knowledge about. These people are ultimately fighting for their lives. Did they resist this from the beginning intellectually? Did they see this as patriotic? Uh, you know, in in the in the Ukraine, they didn't. They they saw it as a, for what it was. They knew it was a, it was a, uh, it was war, effectively. Exactly. But here, how much of this, the response of the person's street, if we know it at all, was was just optimistic patriotism versus just fear. It's war on them on the countryside, on their livelihood, on their tradition. And they know that perfectly well, perfectly well. You, you see these propaganda posters. Um, and it's a good question. I had a, an eminent professor in Sinology who was somehow upset. That study of China, Sinology. Sinology, yeah, study of China. At Columbia somehow upset at the conclusions I had drawn from my research on the Great Leap Forward and told me that surely some of those villages would have been enthusiastic because you, you could see it from the photos. But all these photos are staged. This is state propaganda. People smile. They are condemned to perpetual enthusiasm. They must embrace the state and embrace every decision made by a superior. Um, so people smile when they have to hand over the property to the state. There are images in 1955, 56, just before the start of the Great Leap Forward, of shopkeepers 
who have had their shop for a generation and are happy to hand it over to the state when all industry becomes a function of the state and is nationalized. Of course, I wondered myself too, why would you be smiling when you hand over your assets to the state? Well, there are two very simple reasons. First, if you don't, you get beaten up, if you're lucky. Uh, in a worst-case scenario, you get labeled a rightist or a counter-revolutionary, which is very much the end of any likelihood of you being able to survive in this regime. It basically means you'll be sent to a camp. But there's another reason. As your shop becomes the property of the state, in other words, property of the party, as the industry you have built up over several generations uh, becomes property of the state, as the field you used to till for many generations in the countryside becomes property of the state, you need a job. You know? So you had better smile. You become an employee of the state. You better smile. So uh, I just want to remind listeners, uh, in a few weeks, uh, probably about a month from when this episode airs uh, on, on China, we're going to have the first of what I hope will be at least two, maybe more episodes on In the First Circle, uh, Solzhenitsyn's masterpiece, his novel about um, the Sharashka, the, a particular kind of prison camp in the Soviet Union. And in that book, there is a character, uh, Lev Rubin, who stands in, it's actually a, based on a, a friend of, of uh, Solzhenitsyn's during his time in the camps, who is a very devoted Marxist and is clearly torn by the fact that this the regime that he respects intellectually has put him in prison for something that he probably uh, either didn't do or something he did that wasn't very uh, particularly bad. And it certainly was the case in the Soviet Union in the in, in the worst of the, of the purges, that the part, the loyal party members, you know, someone like Bukharin, who is basically murdered by Stalin and forced to confess beforehand and does confess and potentially even sees himself as a counter-revolutionary, sees himself as the equivalent of a rightist in the Soviet system. So you know, the, the Soviet Union has this great intellectual Marxism among its, its intellectual class that is troubled by Stalinism deeply when they when they are forced to be ground under its gears, uh, its wheels. Was that there in, the, in China? So I'm, I'm kind of take your sinologist professor's uh, viewpoint here for a minute. Were there people who saw Mao either as you know an incredible exemplar who was who who served the people, or as espousing a theory that okay, so maybe it didn't work, but but they, were, they wanted it to, which is, I think is true in the Soviet Union for many people. Not all of them, of course. Most of them saw it for what it was. Um, but in China, I don't, I don't have that feeling. Is, is that, am I missing something? Is there something there? There, there? there is. I think the operative term here is the one you used uh, to describe the, the, one of the protagonists in, uh, in Solzhenitsyn's uh, book, namely an intellectual. And there is no lack of intellectuals, either in the West or inside China, who embrace the communist cause and are devoted Maoists. There are many members in the Communist Party of China who are absolutely convinced that um, this is the thing to do. Collectivization is the way to go. Abolition of private property is, is a 
basic uh, fundamental principle of communism. But these are intellectuals. Uh, and what is an intellectual? An intellectual is a person who works with ideas. One might say an idealist, if not an ideologue. Yeah. But I can assure you that your farmer in the north, the <laughs> middle, or the south, east or west, whose livelihood depends on their ability to cultivate the soil, is not one of them. They know perfectly well what happens when you start close cropping, deep, deep plowing, smothering your crop with fertilizer, or carrying out collectivization. So let's shift. And by the way, I brought up the social instinct because I, I encourage listeners to, to read the book in advance and follow along. Uh, we managed, after I tweeted on it, to sell it out at Amazon, but hope, I hope by the time this episode airs, there's a few more left. And I strongly encourage people to read it in the paperback or hardcover rather than the Kindle version. I did. I read it myself in the Kindle version recently. It's a little hard to keep up with the characters. Uh, I think the paperback's a little easier. So I'm just recommending that if you, if you want to follow along, you will be able to enjoy the episodes without reading the book as well. Okay, so the th one other thing I want to talk about, which is, you know, just uh, you couldn't make it up. Uh, it, this is such an extraordinary thing that even though I find it deeply confirming of all of my strongest biases and priors, uh, I, I, I find it hard to believe it actually happened because it's too too good as a example of, of my worldview, which is at some point in, in the middle, of, I think at the beginning of this, or maybe the middle, you'll tell me, uh, Mao uh, starts a campaign against the four pests or the four vermin, which are flies, mosquitoes, rats, and sparrows and encourages people to kill them in en masse because they're, uh, for a lot of reasons, but for the sparrows, which is what I want to focus on, they eat grain and seeds, obviously. So the idea was if we can get rid of the, um, the sparrows, we'll have more grain. And um, talk about that campaign and how it was carried out and what happened. I mean, it's, it's, we have some video footage of that we'll put up on, um, on the, the page for the episode. But, Frank, tell us what happened. Well, as you said, um, it's a war against nature. Mao says it very clearly. We are in a war against nature. You have to tame nature. And one of the biggest thieves, besides locusts and insects, are, of course, sparrows. They steal grain. <laughs> so what do you do? You get rid of them. How? Well, you have an entire nation in lockstep, so to speak, where it's timed in such a way that every village comes out at the same time, uh, making as much noise as possible, I mean, banging on Chinese gongs, uh, pots and pans, trumpets, pots, pans, if they still have them before these uh, backyard furnaces. You make as much noise as possible. You wave big white sheets to make sure that these parrows are so afraid to never have a moment where they can have a rest. And there's video footage of, of peasants with long uh, flags that look long sticks with flags on the end, which are maybe, I don't know, 30 or 40 feet uh, 10 to 15 meters long, these sticks, and they're waving them in the air near trees to discourage the sparrows from, from landing. And the claim is, sparrows literally, some are shot, some are shot with guns, some are shot with slingshots, 
but many of them fall dead out of the sky because they're they're so harassed. Now, I find that a little hard to believe, but there's footage, again, I don't know how representative it is, there's footage online of people with truckloads of dead sparrows and, and children parading around a string of dead sparrows in triumph. They've climbed into the trees, they've crushed the eggs, they've... So, the claim is a billion sparrows are killed. Yes. Is that, I don't know if that's... Do we have any idea if that's true? Well, I, it's surreal, isn't it? Is it? Surreal. The it whole, is surreal. It's a big number, but there are probably a billion sparrows in China. Well, the, the numbers are surreal. In the 50s. When you say a billion, that might more or less be plausible, <laughs> but um, the most surprising thing is the, is the sense of specious precision, false precision. Yeah. Uh, that is used in reporting some of these figures. So here, here I have one for uh, the city of Shanghai, where they claim that they have eliminated 1,367,440 sparrows. You think, really, was there somebody counting these sparrows? I doubt that very uh, yeah. much. Yeah. Well, it was probably 443 at the end, but yeah, there's a yes. terrible rounding and inaccuracy, a... Uh, Yes, I'm sure long-time listeners will remember my joke about macroeconomics. That, you know, how do you know a macroeconomist has a sense of humor? They use uh, decimal points. So here's the same kind of ridiculous, uh, tragic, um, yes. really. It's, 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 there's a comic element to it, but it's tragic comic because what happens? Well, of course, once you get rid of birds, um, your insects have a field day. So here we are, a few months later. What year are we in now, roughly? We're 1958. Okay. 58. You see the sky darken as this swarm of grasshoppers. Locusts. Yeah. Approach. And they cover the fields in a bristling blanket. Eat everything. And it isn't just uh, locusts. There are all sorts of insects that thrive some of them I had never heard of. There's one called the red spider, for instance. Uh, there's a whole series of insects that are there to profit uh, from this whole campaign against sparrows. So, defeat. And I, I, I heard this on a, I don't think it's in your book, but I saw this on a, a video online that, that they had to, after they, they did realize it was a mistake that they imported sparrows from the Soviet Union in the aftermath of this to try to reduce the locust crop. I, I didn't know. Um, it's perfectly plausible. I was a student in China in the middle of the 1980s. We're talking several decades after this, a quarter of a century after this disaster. A bird was a rare sight. A bird was a rare sight. It's hard to hard to believe uh but it there was just like you said it was a war against nature i don't know how effective or you know ineffective it actually was but the whole idea of it is just a perfect metaphor for uh for my favorite high quote you know the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design here you think you're increasing the grain crop but you're actually uh destroying it and um so there's, at this point, and you can all drink now. I know some of you have a drinking game for when I say that quote, so I know you're excited when, you, when I brought up the sparrows because you saw it coming. Um, so there's, 
at this point, uh, in, in, by 58, 59, the, the grain crop is down. Uh, the amount that's available is down to the people. And a set of horrific things takes place that it's almost, uh, it's difficult to read about. And I'm sure it was difficult for you to, to research. But people are eating mud. They're stripping trees of bark. There's, there's bark stripped everywhere um, in, in villages. People are selling their children for food. They're being buried alive because just the dealing with the corpses is a, is a problem. And there's cannibalism. Um, those are the worst of it. Just otherwise, people are dropping dead from disease, weakened by, uh, by malnutrition, and dropping dead from hunger. Um, how widespread were these? The worst of these is are these, you know, a tragedy here and there of, of this kind of grotesque destruction of human dignity, or is this? widespread throughout the country. You know, how, how much, do we have any idea how much cannibalism there was, for example, or, or whether people, you know, it's horrifying that one person would sell a child, but was it common? Do we know? No. And how would, how would, how would you know as, as, the, as the historian? Well, it's, 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 you don't know. There is, it's very ironic that in a socialist country, on the collectivization where private property is abolished, everything can be traded. Right. Because, of course, that's what people do. They must survive at all costs. So they open black markets. They have a parallel economy. They will sell whatever bricks they still have in their, in their homes. Um, they will sell the clothes they have on their back. Literally, you see, you have descriptions in party archives the throngs of people who of a, a bedraggled humanity who walks naked in the countryside trying to escape from from the famine, and of course they sell their own children, uh, not in order to make a gain, but because they believe rightly, possibly, that by selling their child, that child at least will have some sort of future. It's one man who sells a, a woman. A woman and a man, a couple that sell their child for, uh, I, I believe, uh, two kilos of unshelled peanuts. That's what they sell their child for. So in the face of this kind of apocalyptic catastrophe, why don't more people head to the city? Why don't they try to get, get somewhere where there is food? Oh, they do. So talk about the, the, the flows of, of people in this oh, they, period and what restraints they, they do. These are not people who, who are just waiting for death. Um, they've learned since 1949 that there's very little point in opposing the Communist Party of China head on. Uh, they've been already through a number of campaigns including a campaign of terror from 1950 to 51 to uh, literally eliminate counter-revolutionaries. They've been through the first phases of collectivization, 55, 56. By the time it's 58, they know what is what. They realize that you do not say no to a carder who tells you to deep plow or do close cropping. You go along, but you uh, try to get by on the sly, as I say. You try to survive as best 
as possible. You try to steal. I interviewed a man once um, who told me that his father died of hunger because it was a very simple principle. Uh, if you were able to steal, steal anything, a handful of grain, you walk through the fields and very quietly uh, you clip off a spike of grain and you eat it raw. The, the raw green kernels, you eat them directly. There's no such thing as cooking this food, but that will help you survive. If you refuse to steal, his father refused to steal. He thought it was immoral to steal. Um, you die. You there, are people steal. Who, there are people who cooked leather, shoes. Uh, there was a woman who told me that she was a child. Her parents died. She was on her own, looking after um, her sister, who was six years old. She was about 9, 10, 11. And at one point, she was living in a mud hut with a thatched roof. She got onto the roof, started eating the thatch on that roof. She thought it, it tasted delicious. I, could, I still remember uh, her face when she said that it tasted delicious. She still has a very good memory of that. People eat anything that you can eat. Uh, mud, as you said, bark from trees. Uh, cooking uh, leather. Um, they steal at every level. Those who are in charge of granaries steal. Uh, boatmen, when they ship the grain, uh, will use a bamboo tube to suck out some of the grain and then replace it with sand, with, of course, the result that somebody down the line is, will be chewing on grit, right? And everybody tries to get by as best as they possibly can. And oddly enough, there's... A thriving black market, as, as this famine is claiming more and more people. By the time that we are in 1959-60, um, you find a thriving black market in just about everything, everywhere. But, but I, you digress to talk about theft when we were, we were going to talk about migration. So it, when you see that there's no grain in your village, your first thought's going to be, I'm going to the city. I'm trying to go to the city, I'm trying to get... Yes. It's a very large country, so it's very hard to get out of the country, although you talk about how people try to get to, to Hong Kong, which is un, at the time under British control, Yes, um, with not much success. Yeah. But could they get to the city? They could. In the beginning, it is uh, tolerated in 1958, since this is a great leap forward. And a lot of optimism. Exactly. Since industry will expand, some 15 million people... Uh, migrate from the countryside to the cities are are employed more or less illegally uh, by factories who wish to contribute to uh, oh, no, hit their numbers. Yes, to the increasing quotas in in every 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 product you can that you can think of. But, but I asked the question because, by impression, yes, both from your book and and a little that I've read else, elsewhere on on the famine, yeah. is that. It was much worse in the countryside than in the city. Of course. So most of the deaths were in the countryside, but they couldn't get to the city. Why, why did they get stuck there? Did they were too weak? Were they, did they get you know, surprised and stuck there because they were too weak to get to leave? Once you have that initial migration of some 15 million people, which is more or less allowed, by the time the famine really starts kicking in in 59, 60, 61, these cities are fenced off from the countryside. Uh, Literally. It, it, so it, 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 
is as if you live in two worlds. So the cities, and they're quite literally fenced off. You simply cannot get past guards who stand out there. Not only that, but in China, as of course in the Soviet Union, by 1955, an internal passport system <coughs> is instituted, which ties the farmers to the land, which means they can't travel without permission. Which is not to say that they don't do it. They will try to escape in the middle of the night. There will be village leaders who actually allow them to go in the hope that if they reach the city and manage to work in an underground factory, they will send some remittances back home. The people try as best as they can. But there are, of course, also examples where um, in some villages, uh, people have become so weak um, that... Yeah, they're bedridden, effectively. They can't even yeah. walk down the road to the next village, never mind find their way to a city. So we should pause here for a second, talk a little bit about how you, you wrote the book, the research that you did, how much time you spent in the archives, and how there was an opening in the archives that allowed you to have access to some information that wasn't previously available. Well, I was very lucky. I had been working in archives in China, um, but on the Republican era, in other words, the first half of the 20th century before that red flag goes up in 1949. Um, and I'd noticed um, that occasionally you would be able to see archives on post-49, the communist era. So when I moved to Hong Kong uh, from the University of London, um, I thought that I should explore it a bit more. And I was quite lucky in the sense that um, in the years leading up to the Olympics in 2008, there was definitely a sense of, of goodwill, of opening up, of uh, allowing people to just get on with it. And of course, there was an archival law that stated, as in most countries, that archives should be opened up after a period of 30 years. Um, so a lot of material was there. Um, and you could read a great deal of stuff about topics that normally would be taboo. I'll give you one example. You mentioned cannibalism. How many cases were there? We will never know, simply because there weren't enough people to go around finding out what had happened. But you can find documents which, which tell you a great deal about it. Um, so far, I think, both for the Soviet Union and for China, um, the documentation is very flimsy. There are rumors about cannibalism, there are reports about it. But one document I found um, was compiled by the Public Security Bureau and listed 50 cases of cannibalism in one village in Linxia County, Gansu Province. And it listed name of the victim, the manner in which his or her body had been obtained. Was this person killed? You know, whacked in the back of the head. Was it a body that had been uh, uh, taken out, a corpse, a corpse taken out from a grave? How many people had eaten it? How was the body prepared? It's, what, was there a family relationship, etc., etc.? A complete list, as only communists can produce, of about 50-plus cases for one, one village in Linxia. An extraordinary documentation that was in there. So, of course, I was in there like a ferret. I spent a good <laughs> three years traveling from Hong Kong I would say every couple of weeks or so, in total probably five, six months in archives, everywhere, the north, the middle, east, west, across the border. You take a train from Hong Kong, take a high-speed train two years later, 
two, two hours later, sorry, <laughs> you could be in the provincial archives of Guangdong province. Uh, very exciting. Of course, it went downhill from 2008 onwards. And today, a lot of the material has been, unfortunately, uh, reclassified. In other words, it'd be very difficult to do the same kind of research today. Conditions have changed enormously. So how did this horrific episode, which lasts for years, you know, it's not just one growing season, how does it come to an end? What changes? Why, you know, your book ends with a recrimination uh, at a, a party meeting of that this was a failure um, and... Someone other than Mao takes responsibility for it, I think, which is, you know, extraordinary. Uh, but, but then, what happens? Does you can't just quote go? Well, let's just go back to normal. How, how does it possibly get reversed? I think in October 1960, a report lands on Mao's desk, and it talks about um, the famine in a particular province, and it's a very hard-hitting report, and it's given to him by a very close confidant, some, somebody who Mao can really trust. I think Mao at that point realizes that he simply doesn't have a choice. He's tried to push this through again and again and again, but it's reached a point where the famine has caused such massive devastation, not just in... Um, in human lives, but for instance, housing in the countryside destroyed for up to about 40% in some provinces, like the province of, of Hunan, where he comes from. Forests cut down, again, up to half of the, of the trees cut down in some provinces. To fire the to blast fire furnaces. And, exactly. Yeah. And the transportation system that has pretty much come to a halt stuff accumulating by railway sidings in, 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 the, 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 in the tens of thousands of, of tons, the whole system is about to collapse. So how do you turn that around? And so, I mean, I, I, there comes a point where he, I'm sure he realizes, and I don't know if I'm being fair to the man or not, not that it really matters, but you, know, you get the impression he doesn't care whether it's killed ten millions, tens of millions of people. It's all just part of, you know, the process that he's, you know, is that expression, you know, you'll get it right about, you know, for every, for every finger that's off, there's nine that are fine. So, you know, whatever yes. didn't go well, there's, there was a lot of on the good side, but here, this is pretty much reversed. Yes. <laughs> there's almost nothing good and everything bad. Yes. And once he accepts that, how does he possibly reset things to get going again? What does he reverse? Well, the two things he does. First, he allows ordinary villagers to cultivate their own small private plot. Now, as you know from the Soviet Union, uh, most of the produce came from private huge plots. Huge portion, yeah. Yeah, huge, huge plot. Now, of course, many villagers were already doing it somehow. Um, right, because they weren't, not everything's... <laughs> Yeah, this idea that you could run China from the top down is exactly. literally true. In, in many cases, you asked me earlier on, you know, was it the same throughout the country? Of course not. Right. It's a huge country. And in some cases, you will have uh, village leaders who will quietly side with the villagers. Some of them might even take the grain and distribute it to them 
and tell them you should eat this or hide it before the grain inspector comes. Yeah. There are entire provinces that manage to somehow get through, whereas in others, it's utter devastation. If you have a sort of gong-ho, hard uh, provincial leader, it's going to be very tough all the way down to, to the village. But in any event, they are allowed to somehow cultivate the private plot, and that, that's pretty much enough uh, that's maybe a rectify, yeah. To, yeah, to pull them out of, of famine. That, that yeah. that's enough. Frequently, it's just a matter of a couple of percentages, right? Right, five uh, percent more, five percent less. It's a very poor country in the first place. That makes it makes a big impact. But politically, he gets away by, by doing the same thing that Stalin did. So, how does Stalin explain the widespread resistance uh, against collectivization and and the famine ensues? Well, he blames saboteurs. Yeah. People who are opposed to the socialist system and try, try to wreck speculators. Everything. Speculators. So he blames them. He says at one point, I had no idea. I had no idea that there were so many counter-revolutionaries in the countryside. Yeah. But most of all, he takes responsibility, but he does it because he is a very astute politician and he realizes but if he steps forward and takes at least a share of the blame, all of his colleagues will immediately volunteer self-criticism themselves. So it's a very clever move. But the rest of the economy, like, does he shut down the backyard furnace project? Yes. How, how, does, he, how does he get the, the non-agricultural parts of the economy back on some kind of normalish footing? Well, the, 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 the radical collectivization is abandoned. Uh, so it goes back to where collectivization was roughly in 1955-56, in the sense that these people's communes continue to exist, um, but farmers have their own private plot. Some markets are allowed in which the produce that comes from private plots can be traded or bartered. So it, it, not a great deal... Is, is done, but enough is done to get the country more or less out of famine. But let me add one point. Uh, frequently, we have scholars of the Mao era who point out that the famine ended in 1962 and the regime learned a great deal from this. But if you continue to read in these archives all the way up till 1976 when Mao dies, you realize that people continue to die of hunger all the way all the way to the death of Mao, 1970. Just not in the same. Not in the same numbers. Not, not in the millions, not even in the hundreds of thousands. But they, they do die. Uh, and sometimes a reasonably large percentage in some poor regions do die of hunger. So let's talk about the toll during the famine itself in the 58 to 62 period. Mm. Um, what's our, we, we'll never know. No, no. Um, because there are not careful records in rural areas in particular, probably in the cities as well. But how do people go about trying to estimate the number of deaths and what do you think the best estimate is? It's very difficult to do because simply, you know, as you said it yourself, it's not like in the middle of a gigantic catastrophe. There is enough time for a bookkeeper to go around, knock on doors and find out how Census, many people yeah. <laughs> yeah. starved to death. But of course, on the other hand, it is a system that is obsessed with secrecy, but also with information. People do wish to know within the party system. They want to know um, what is happening. 
Um, so most of the numbers that have been advanced, or the, the, all the numbers that have been advanced, come from two sets of figures, the official census, uh, in 19, uh, there was one census in 1953, I believe in 64, and again one in 84, if I'm not wrong, but roughly a census every 10 years or so. But also on the officially published statistics made available from 1984 onwards. So a number of demographers have used that to project all sorts of calculations uh, backwards. And the numbers vary from 30 million um, at most, uh, down to 12 million. The 12 mil million used to be the official estimate of the party itself, which I think is an extraordinary admission. That's not a number you will see right. uh, it's still shocking. today. Yeah. No, it's just quite shocking indeed. But most demographers take 30 million as a sort of reasonable figure, 30 million people who died unnecessarily doing this. And as you point out in the book, people weren't just dying of, of hunger. There's industrial accidents, people, I mean, it's just, it's not a very pleasant time on lots of dimensions, but indeed, let's say 30 million, but you'd think the number's bigger. Yes. Well, uh, once you gain access to the archives, um, of course, you, you do see unpublished figures uh, that have been compiled by, for instance, the Bureau of Statistic, Statistics, or been compiled by very powerful teams who were set to investigate the countryside after 1962 to find out what, what had really happened. And if you compare those numbers with the published statistics, you, you find a very large gap, sometimes 30%, sometimes 5, 50%, sometimes by an order of 3 to 4 to 5. So it varies enormously. So what I did on the number of a whole set of figures is by comparing it to the official statistics, I realized that the, 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 the mismatch is at least 50%. So what I did is take 30 million, and I said you have to, to add at least 15 million to that. So I don't have a figure. I say it should be at least 45 million. And some have, some have put the number at 55 million. Yes. I have a very good colleague uh, from Hunan, incidentally, who spend a decade working in county archives, and he comes up with the number fifty five million which which incidentally is is very close to a number produced by a team of researchers sent in the 1980s to the archives to find out what had happened. And the head of that investigation fled to the United States. Chen Yitzhi fled uh, after the Tiananmen massacre in 1989. Uh, his figure was about, uh, around about 48 million. What's the population of China at this point? At this point, it would be 60 to 680 million. How many? Uh, 600 to 680 million. So 600 million plus. So the number is something just short of 10%. Yes, but over a period of several years. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, I, I, I've been criticized for this number, as you can imagine. That's far too high, and it's utterly implausible. I don't really see what's so implausible about it. We're, we're talking about four years, 58 to 62 if you take the Khmer Rouge, they managed to get rid of 2.4 million, 1.6 1 to 2.4 million are the estimates out of a population of 8 million. Well, I, I look at it a different way. I, you know, I, I don't know whether it's 12 or, or 48 or 55. It's just... Um, Mind-boggling. It's just, right, it's just a horrible tragedy. I was talking to my father this morning and I, 
told him I was doing an interview on the famine in China. I said, how many people do you think died? And he said, I don't know. And I forget, he guessed something. And I said, well, it's actually probably 45 to 55 million and at least 18, at least 18, which is another one of the lower numbers of the year. And he said, well, that's impossible. And I said, why? He said, I've never heard of it. And of course, most Americans have never heard of it. You know, obviously, most Americans don't know anything about the Ukraine and, and the Soviet um, essentially murder of, of millions of people in, in the, what, in the 30s, early early 30s, late 20s? Yeah, 33, yeah. um, 34, yeah. so, 34. You know, we're not, we're not so good at history, but, but my, my father's interest in history and the fact that he doesn't know about it is interesting to me. It doesn't have the, we don't have the awareness of this incident in, in world history. And I wondered, so I'm glad you, you wrote your book and I'm glad we're talking about it, but I wonder how well-known it is in China. Obviously, people told their children. People were alive. People are alive today who remember it. Um, do you have any feel for, one, how well understood it is by young people who were not alive? And second, whether people can talk about it. I think at the time, there was a massive divide between the countryside and the cities, which, by the way, was not just a social political divide, it was a legal divide, and it lasts to this very day. In other words, at the time and to this day, one is classified as being born in the countryside or born in a city, and it leads to a very different sense, series of entitlements. Um, it's a status which is inherited through the mother. Hmm. In other words, if you are born to a mother who is classified as a peasant, you are a peasant, whether you live in a city or not. Um, peasants don't have the same entitlements to schooling, to medical care, to any type of social service. So these differences are quite important. To put it slightly differently, if you drive a car and you, you kill someone, first thing you want to find out is, did you kill somebody registered as a peasant or registered as an urban line? Because the amount of compensation will be very different. It's like a caste system. Or if you wish, it's like an apartheid system, where a large proportion of the population, as in South Africa, is treated in a discriminatory manner. The point I'm trying to make is that the cities were protected during the famine, and people in the cities at the time didn't always realize what was going on. They realized it was bad and that things were not working at all, but they didn't see entire villages starved to death, quite literally. So there's a completely different set of, 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 of a very different way of remembering in the countryside versus remembering in, in the city. Intellectuals are in the cities. The workers tend to be in the cities. I very much doubt that today you would be able to walk into a village and nobody would remember what happened during the Great Leap Forward. I very much doubt that. They would remember. They would remember very well on top of that. There have been attempts which have been filmed by a wonderful documentary filmmaker called uh, Hu Jie. Uh, he films, in one case, uh, an attempt by a village to erect a memorial arch as one tends to do in China, with the names of all the victims of uh, the Great Leap Forward. And they tried to do this in um, about 10, 15 years ago, not very long ago, the 21st century. Um, within a day, the Public Security Bureau came. They bulldozed that memorial arts and arrested the village leaders. Uh, 
for good measure. So clearly, the People's Republic of China is a state of enforced amnesia about the past. When it comes to the Great Leap Forward, this is easier to enforce in the cities because many people didn't go through it than it is in the countryside. But in both cases, there is no attempt to really uh, remember or memorialize or write about it uh, or, or put up a museum or have a remembrance day, uh, which is not to say that there isn't a great amount of interest among historians uh, as well as readers and ordinary people. There very clearly is, but it's very difficult. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a taboo topic. Taboo topic has become even more of a taboo topic since the last man, uh, Xi Jinping, came to power in 2012. So within months of him coming to power, the Emperor Xi, the, the one who has now become a leader for life, within months of coming to power a few years ago, he made it clear that any attempt to undermine criticize the history of the People's Republic of China and its leaders is tantamount to committing the crime of historical nihilism. Now, I scratched the back of my head because I, I didn't quite know what historical nihilism means. doesn't seem like a good thing. But it doesn't sound good. Yeah. It sounds suitably intimidating. Yeah. And I can assure you that most of my friends, colleagues across the border from Hong Kong in the People's Republic of China, in Beijing, in Shanghai, have become very, very quiet. So the ones who work professionally on this entire Mao era have become very quiet. So let's close with the, some observations about Mao. And there's a, there's a reasonably um, lengthy part of the book that describes the prelude to this era and Mao's interactions with his colleagues. And you've since written a lot more about Mao, uh, so, so you know about the aftermath of this, obviously, in, in great detail. The impression I got was quite different from the impression I got that I have of Stalin. And Stalin, no one would publicly criticize, as far as I understand it, would, would, would publicly criticize Stalin. It would be a death sentence. No one would confess. Um, uh, they, well, they would confess, but it usually meant they were going to be executed. And yet here there's a sort of theaterish uh, drama of, of interaction of where... I, I just it's just a very different picture of Mao as as almost buffoon or clownish uh, compared to the totalitarian that I, that he clearly was. Um, and so I want I want I want your reaction to that. Did I did I understand that correctly? And second and secondly, how do you have any feel for how Mao is viewed in in China today? Stalin is unfortunately, in my view, having a bit of a a resurrection in his reputation. There's some romance about him. He was an extraordinarily evil person, in my view, a murderer of the worst kind. Mao, I would put in the same group. But it's a different kind of feeling I have about him, and I'm curious if, if I have that accurately from your book and if people in China today see Mao, how they see him. Um, to the extent it's public, obviously. You've just suggested it's not so public anymore. But Of course. It's very difficult to find out what people think uh, about any one person uh, in a one-party state. We can talk 
in Russia about Stalin because the Communist Party of the Soviet Union is gone. This regime is gone. We, one might not like Putin. And one might even say that the great continuities from the Soviet Union to, to Russia. Uh, but it, it's, it's very different compared to the People's Republic of China. These are the same people, the same structures, the same institutions, uh, same families sometimes who are in control. I mean, in Moscow, there's a museum to memorialize the Gulag. There's absolutely no chance whatsoever of there being a museum in Beijing or Shanghai to memorialize the, the labor greatly, camps. Of, the labor camps yeah. are greatly before. It's not going to happen. To make it clear, the, the memorialization is not positive in, it, in, of the Gulag. No. Right? I, I don't know. No, it's not. Right. So you're saying it's not even going to be talked about in, in China. You can't even talk about it. Well, you, you can, of course, but it's not something that's... It's not talking about publicly. It's not written about. You're not going to see a columnist You're not going the, to walk in a newspaper. and buy a book. You're not going to take uh, uh, a, a, a course on, on the history of the, of, of the gulag uh, in, in Beijing University. It's not going to happen. Of the Chinese gulag. Yes. It's not going to happen. Um, but there is one thing to be said, positively, if you wish about Mao and his, uh, his team, namely that they decided in the middle of the 1940s that uh, unlike the Soviet system, they wouldn't really kill each other off. So you could be purged, but to be purged meant being sent away somewhere to cultivate your plot or to work on your memoirs, you would lose your power, your prestige, your access to servants, good housing, food. They didn't kill you. But they wouldn't kill you. Not that it didn't happen. Of, of course, some did get killed. And of course, during the Cultural Revolution, which comes after the Great Leap Forward, uh, quite a few got killed, tortured to death in the case of Liu Shaoqi, the number two who stood behind Mao during the Great Leap Forward and becomes a critic in 1961-62. But overall, you don't get dragged away into a dungeon as happened uh, under Stalin. Um, But that doesn't make Mao a less frightening person. He has a great memory for any slight committed by any one person. He's got a tremendous memory. Um, He's a master at pitting people against each other. He's very good at the politics of the corridor. He finds out about people. He undermines them very slowly. He can bide his time. He's very patient, as Stalin was, of course. Um, But take the example of, in fact, since we're talking about the Gulag, Take the example of uh, the terror inflicted by Stalin and, say, um, land reform. Stalin sends his agents to kill those who oppose it. But Mao wants people to do it against each other. Mao pits farmers against other farmers during land reform. During the Cultural Revolution, Mao will pit ordinary people against other ordinary people. He's a master at having people bloody their own hands so that they become complicit in a great crime. And to some extent, you might say that's what he did with the Great Leap Forward, too. Everybody was implicated to some extent, even, of course, ordinary people who stole 
from their neighbours or sometimes the members of their own family. So he was a very different character when you compare him to Stalin. Um, Stalin, to me, always strikes me as rather cold. But Mao could be very good in appearing to be sort of a vincular, open-minded person, could crack a joke to put people at their ease. He could mislead you very, very well. You wouldn't walk in with a sense of dread. You would walk in, of course, with a sense of you know, slight fear and apprehension, but he would put you at your ease. That's, of course, a mistake many people made, including all the victims, like Liu Shaoqi and others who misread him throughout their entire careers and became victims during the Great Leap Forward, uh, during, during the Cultural Revolution uh, later on. And do you have any feel for his reputation today in China? It's difficult. It's very difficult to say. My feeling is in the countryside he's not liked. <laughs> My guest today has been Frank DeCotter. His book is Mao's Great Famine. Frank, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.